Well, welcome everyone. I'm so glad that you are joining us online today for worship. And as we get started, can I just point out something that is extremely obvious that all of us have been thinking about? And that is this. It has been a wild and crazy week in our nation, hasn't it? I mean, first of all, we are living through a medical global pandemic that just sometimes feels like there is no end to it. And on top of that, our nation right now is experiencing civil unrest that currently is leading some to peacefully protest injustices and others are violently rioting, destroying, and taking lives, both of which is just the result of this massive eruption of anger that is deeply rooted in the history of our nation. Just those two things alone, the coronavirus and what's going on in our nation, that's a lot to take in. But, but if you step back from that, what else do we see? We see tropical storms spinning off different coasts in our world. I just read an article just this week that there is a stadium-sized asteroid that's gonna pass close by the Earth this very weekend. And that's a reminder that, you know what? It's not uh, out of the realm of possibility that one of these asteroids might hit the earth one day and could level out a whole city or even worse. Then you look at other things in our world that world economies right now are kind of all over the place. Nations are threatening nations. Some countries are on the brink of war and different kinds of conflicts around the world. None of the things that I've even mentioned so far um, even speak to the, the daily horrific murders of, of countless unborn babies the, or the ungodly governments and they try to, to squash faith around the world and destroy the foundation of the family. I mean, uh, the list could go on and on and on of things that we see that are happening every single day in our world. And I ask the question, are any of these things new? No. I mean, have we seen these kinds of things before? Yes, many times over. These are the kinds of things. These are the kind of behaviors that we've always seen. And the history books are full of many more examples through history of all these kinds of things. Now, this isn't a sermon today about how Christians should respond to these things that we see in the world or what our responses to them should be. I mean, I could spend many sermons talking about how Christians respond to specific things that we see happening um, around our world. But I do want to say this, in light of our study through the book of Revelation, what conclusions should we draw as men and women of faith about what we've seen just say in the last week in our nation? I can tell you from where I'm at in my study, there is really only one response. There's only one takeaway, if you will, one conclusion that we should draw, and it's this. We look at the world around us, and we come to this conclusion— the return of Christ is near. I look around, and in light of our study of Revelation, it draws me that to one conclusion. I look at all the unrest, I go, the return of Christ is, is near. When is he gonna return? I don't have a clue. Is that gonna be in 10 minutes from now? Is it gonna be in 10 years? Is it gonna be a thousand years from now? I have absolutely no idea. But Jesus is coming back. We have been warned. warned, And just right here in the book of Revelation, we're 11 chapters through it, and we've already been warned multiple times that we should be ready for the return of Christ. I love how Paul states 
some of this in, in the book of Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says this, listen, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now there are numerous ways that we could apply these three verses, but did you hear the last part? Not one person is going to be able to give an excuse, an excuse for anything. Like I didn't know or, or nobody told me. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter who you are. We're not going to stand before the Lord one day and have an excuse. Jesus is coming back. There are no second chances. There will be no uh, excuses whatsoever. And so with our biblical lenses on, we need to open our eyes and clearly see the world that we are living in for what it is. It all points to the same thing. And that same thing is this, the return of Christ is gonna happen. And I would say it is near. But until that great day, when we look off in the clouds and see Jesus coming, we are to remain what? We are to remain faithful. And I have a question for you. Why is it so hard to remain faithful? I mean, have you ever spent some time really thinking about that one question? Why is it so hard to remain faithful? I mean, if I had to guess, we all know people who at one point were fired up for the Lord and we would look at their lives and we would say, man, now that person, they, they love Jesus. That is a top 10 Christian. Man, they are really deep into their faith. But where are they today? We all know people who once were very strong in their faith, but now they don't even act like they love Jesus. They, they could care less about his church. They're living a life that pleases themselves. And, and we're like, what happened? Why is it so difficult to stay faithful until the end? Last week, the Christian music world was shaken by the announcement from John Steingard, who is the front man, lead singer of the Christian band Hawk Nelson. He made this announcement on his Twitter account that he is no longer a Christian. I'm like, wow, whoo. He said, I can't sing some of our songs with a good conscience anymore because, and I quote, I no longer believe in God. Now you can go online anytime you want. You can read all about the things that led up to his decision to renounce his faith in, in the Lord. But when I, when I heard about it, it just made me sad. I, I've seen Hawk Nelson in concert before. I, I know the kind of influence that they, they have had over the years, especially on youth culture. I know that his renouncing of his faith could potentially rattle the faiths of many others. I pray for John Steingard that he will repent, that he will come to his senses. I will never give up on that possibility, not for him, not for anybody. I always, as I think we all should, hold out hope for everybody to turn back to the Lord. But as it stands, he is on the path to fail at the very thing Jesus commanded Christians to do in Revelation, and that is to endure and be victorious until the very end. Why is staying the course so hard for people? Why is being victorious to the very end such a challenging thing? And I want to tell you today, I know exactly why it is. 
is because we have an adversary that we cannot see who is evil to the core. He is the devil. He is also known as Satan. In many places, including Revelation, he is called the ancient serpent. Now, we have briefly been exposed to him in our study through Revelation thus far. But now that we have come to chapter 12, we are going to get a formal introduction to who he is and a full-on description of his desire to lead the whole world astray. In Revelation chapter 12, we are going to come face-to-face with our real enemy, Hey, I want to show you something that uh, I think all of you know what it is, and I would guess that many of you have this in your home, or maybe grandma and grandpa have a nativity scene in, in their home that they bring out every year, and, and perhaps even the Christmas story is told around the nativity scene. Well, we're familiar with this, right? Here we have the picture of the birth narrative Christ um, from the perspective of the Gospels. So you have the baby Jesus, and he's lying in the manger, and here obviously you have Joseph, and you have Mary, the, the parents. They look pretty good for just giving birth, doesn't she? Looks really good. Um, and, and the scene here is set like in a stable. Many of your nativity sets probably have a barn or a stable as a backdrop. You know, um, you know the story, Joseph and Mary, they traveled to Bethlehem, and there was no room in the inn, so they, she had to give birth in, in a stable, or you know, I think you could argue it's more like a cave, but anyway, it's where... It's where animals were kept. And so that's why you have animals nearby. And that's why you have this, this scene, Jesus lying in a manger, which is nothing more than a feeding trough, and his parents, and then you have the, the animals. And in a lot of nativity sets, you have a shepherd or two. You know, the shepherds were watching their fields by night, but then there was an announcement by the angels, and they came running to see Jesus. This nativity set has a couple wise men here. Now, we know the wise men came later. We, we know they weren't there the day Jesus was born. But, you know, this encompasses the picture, the birth narrative of, of Jesus and the Christmas story. You know, you may not realize this, but did you know that just about every nativity set in the entire world is missing one of the main characters? I don't know if, if you knew that or not. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you today. In fact, what I'm about to show you might actually ruin the nativity for you forever. I mean, you may not ever wanna display your nativity set ever again. Well, probably not that extreme. But some of you, after I show you this missing piece, some of you might go out, just might go out and add this piece to your own nativity set. If this is what the birth narrative or the scene of Jesus' birth from the perspective of the Gospels This is what it looks like from the perspective of Revelation chapter 12. Boy, can you imagine going over to grandma's house at Christmas and she has added a dragon to her nativity set. You're gonna be like, grandma, what are you doing? Where did that dragon come from? Friends, I want you to see this right now. This is the missing piece from every nativity set ever created. It is a dragon. Now I'm going to step off to the side here and I want you to just absorb this image. I want you just to absorb it and take it in because it is a snapshot of a reality that to this day many Christians fail to understand. You see, in, in Revelation chapter 12, it's Christmas Day. Well, not exactly Christmas Day, but Revelation chapter 12 is a behind the scenes view of Christmas. 
This chapter tells the story of what's happening in the spiritual realm that no one can see at the time of Jesus' birth. What we often fail to remember, or perhaps what many never knew until they were shown, is that Satan also had an agenda, and that was to destroy Jesus in the very moments after his birth. Now, in Revelation 12, we've already seen the seventh trumpet has been sounded and, and the completed story of Christ's return and the judgment of the world and the rewards and, and all those that have marked. That is over. And now John's vision in chapter 12, it shifts to a brand new scene. It's Christmas and Jesus is about to be born. If you have your Bibles open, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 12, and let's start reading in verse 1. And it just says this, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. I'm telling you, friends, what we're reading here is a tremendous behind-the-scenes view of Christmas. Yeah, and the verse in what we just read that really jumps out at me is verse 4, where it says the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, and, and he was going to devour the baby the moment it was born. Boy, there are so many mental images that come to my mind just from reading that verse alone. But in these few short verses, we are introduced to three characters in John's vision. Two of them are very easy to identify. See, we have the identity of the male child, which obviously, and I hope you see this, symbolizes Jesus. And the proof is in verse 5, where it says, he will rule the nations with an iron scepter. This is an image of a king, Jesus being born from the line of David, who was Israel's greatest king. It portrays this image that is, that is consistent throughout the New Testament, that Jesus would be a king, although he was a king like none other. Nobody understood his kingdom until after he was gone. Verse 5 says that this child, Jesus, was snatched up by God. This is probably a reference, I'm not sure, but I think it's a reference to Jesus' ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1, where he takes his seat at the right hand of God. So this male child in this vision is Jesus. And then we have these, this red dragon. The identity of the red dragon uh, is given to us actually a few verses later in verse 9 where it says the dragon, also known as the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So obviously we know who the dragon is. It's, it, the dragon symbolizes Satan and, and it even spells it out for us. And I, I love the fact that we get three names for Satan here. He is called the ancient serpent. And what does that tell us? This is the same guy who showed up in the beginning. 
In the garden in Genesis chapter 3, where he slithered up to Eve and tempted her to eat the fruit. It's that Satan. He calls him Satan, which is the Hebrew word for adversary or accuser. And he calls him the devil, which is the Greek translation of, of Satan, which means the same thing. Adversary, accuser, or slanderer. So, so there is absolutely no mistaking when it comes to Revelation chapter 12 that the male child symbolizes Jesus and the red dragon symbolizes Satan. But who is the pregnant woman? You know, that's not as easy to identify. Now, our natural inclination is to say, oh, well, the pregnant woman is obviously Mary, the, the mother of, of Jesus, but not so fast. That doesn't fit the context of this. Others have said, you know, the, the, the pregnant woman obviously is, is the church. It symbolizes the body of Christ. And that definitely answers some questions in this, but it doesn't answer the big one, which is why would the church give birth to Jesus? That doesn't quite make any sense. It shouldn't be the other way around, that the life of Christ gives birth to the church through his death and resurrection. Some have even said, you know what, I think the pregnant woman is actually Eve from, from the garden because there is conversation in the book of Genesis about how Eve's offspring will be at odds with, with Satan, but that seems like a stretch. That doesn't fit the context here. So you look at it, like, what makes the most sense? And you know, this is just my opinion. This is just where I land. But what makes the most sense to me is that the pregnant woman symbolizes Israel, I mean, she, it says that she described Israel as, as, or this woman as somebody that has a crown with 12 stars on her head. You know, could that symbolize the 12 tribes of, of Israel? P possibly. Jesus was born a Jew, so he was born from the line of David. This all comes through Israel. Maybe John didn't mean any of that. Maybe he didn't have anybody in particular in mind. I mean, this is apocalyptic literature, but maybe, the, maybe it's just part of the story of, of the, what's going on with Satan and Jesus. But what I think makes the most sense to me is that, uh, is that this pregnant woman represents Israel, which gave birth to Jesus. So here we are at the nativity scene, and Jesus is born. And suddenly, Satan appears, and he wants to destroy Jesus. And, and, if, and if you're telling this story to your kids around Christmas time, they would probably be at the edge of their seats, and they would be listening in, holding their breath, wondering, did Jesus make it? You have this powerful red dragon, this fire-breathing dragon that wants to destroy the baby Jesus. Did he make it? Here's a little side note for you. If you're looking for creative ways to keep your kids engaged with the story of Jesus at Christmas. In other words, how do I get my kids to really understand what Jesus has done without them focusing more on candy and Christmas gifts and, and all the things that come with Christmas? This year then, why don't you do this? Tell the Christmas story from the perspective of Revelation chapter 12 instead of Luke chapter two. They will never forget it. Their eyes will get super big. Now, they might also ask you to sleep in your bed that night with you because it scares them a little bit, but they will never forget it. You see, what people don't realize is that it wasn't just King Herod who wanted the baby Jesus to die. Satan was after him too, but he couldn't get him. God protected him. Look at verse seven. Let's keep reading. Then <clears throat> war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. 
<clears throat> the great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their enemy so much as to shrink to death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And with that, we get a pretty incredible behind-the-scenes view of Satan and his demonic horde. This is where we learn in Scripture of this huge battle in which Satan loses. He is booted from the presence of God, and he takes a third of the angels with him. And that just shows you just how powerful the devil is. He carried influence over other angels, but he was not strong enough to defeat the forces of heaven. We ask the question, when did this battle take place? The answer is, we don't know. I mean, remember, this is apocalyptic literature, and I don't know if we could definitively say it was at this point in history that this happened. Was it the beginning of creation? Was it here at the cross? What, when, when did this battle take place? I love what Mark Scott says about that very question. He says this, the time that this happened is not the point. And I agree with him wholeheartedly. The time of this, that's not the point. The point is power. Satan is vicious and angry and he postures himself to eat the male child to whom the woman has given birth. So it doesn't really matter when this happened per se. What, what matters is, this is Satan and his viciousness and his anger, and he wants to kill Jesus. That's the point. And what is great news in all of this is that Satan was absolutely defeated in his efforts to get Jesus. He loses the battle. But at the same time, it's kind of bad news for us. Satan fell from heaven, and he landed where? That's right. The devil is now on earth, and the last time I checked... That's where we live. It's great news that Satan was defeated. It's bad news that he's on earth with us. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for time, times, and half a time. Out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus." 
When Satan wasn't able to destroy Jesus at his birth, what did he do? He went after the woman who had given birth. And and we learn from this text that God had made some provisions for her. He kept her out of Satan's reach for time, times, and half a time, which we know is the duration of the end time. So from that time all the way to the end of the return of Christ, Satan is limited in what he can do. In other words, Satan gave it his best shot to destroy Jesus and to destroy this woman. And this apocalyptic image that we see here that John shows us from this vision is that Satan spews like a river of water trying to take out the feet of the woman. But God is like, no, I'm not gonna let that happen. And when Satan couldn't get Jesus and when Satan couldn't get her, this is what he chose to do. He will wage war against her offspring. Can I give you a second to think? Any guesses as to who the offspring are? Who's the offspring? That's right, us, Christians, the church. The Bible even says it's, it's those who keep God's command and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. So there's this battle that Satan loses and he, and, and, and he tries to get Jesus and he tries to get the woman and he can't do it and he turns his focus on you and me, the offspring, Christians, the church. Friends, I want you to hear me today and what is so clear from Revelation chapter 12 is that Christians are under satanic attack and we will be until the return of Christ. We have this unseen enemy who is bent on our destruction But let me also remind you of some really good news. And the text tells us what this good news is. It's that Satan has already been defeated. You look back in our previous text, what did it say? He knows his time is short. This is not new news to the devil. He knows that he has limited time. He knows that the duration of the last days is all he gets. And he's already defeated. His fate is sealed And that happened when Jesus went to the cross and when he shed his blood there for the sins of the world, taking sins away, and three days later, raising to life. That fact that Satan is defeated at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is deeply rooted throughout the entire Bible. But we are reminded of that truth again right here in our text. Look back at verse 11, chapter 12, verse 11. What does it say? It says, they triumphed over him. The they is, is, is Christian martyrs. It's the they, all those who have followed Christ. It's the offspring of the woman and, and it's the church. They, how did they, they triumph over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. You see, we have triumphed over this unseen adversary and it's by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. We have already won because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We have been sealed. We have been marked by God. We are God's property. We are already victorious. And that is why it is so important that we stay faithful until the very end. We win, but we must stay faithful until our time on earth is over or until we see Jesus coming in again. But even though the Lord has already won, and even though we are already victorious, we can never forget, my friends, we are still at war. 
Satan has one huge agenda. And do you know what it is? To lead as many people away from the Lord as possible. And that is why it is difficult to stay faithful to the very end. We asked the question at the beginning, why is it hard to stay faithful? It's because we're at war. And Satan's one agenda is to turn the whole world astray. And we have been at war with Satan since the very first day of the church in Acts chapter 2. And we will be wartime Christians until the return of Christ. It's why Peter warned the church this way in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8. He says, be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. My two sons, Neil and Brock and I, one of our favorite movies that we could just watch over and over and over again is the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit series, the, those three movies from the Hobbit. They are among our favorites. You know, they're on TV all the time and as we're flipping channels, we come across it. We'll watch it for a while. And maybe you've got a movie like that. It's like, oh, I could just watch that at any time. I especially love the storyline of Bilbo Baggins from the Hobbit, how he helps a remnant of dwarves um, reclaim their mountain home. And you know, it's, it, it sounds simple enough, but if you've read the book or you've seen the movie, then you know that there's one gigantic problem with the dwarves returning home in the mountain. There's a dragon there. And that dragon's name is Smog, and he lives in the mountain, and he is not gonna give it back. And he is an angry dragon, and he destroys anybody who threatens him, and he's just an evil dragon to the very core. There is this fantastic line that Tolkien, the author, writes as the dwarves seek to take back the mountain. And I love it. He writes, it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Oh, what a fantastic line. It does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Friends, for the entirety of our lives, we will live near the dragon. The earth is his domain. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. Only God is those things. But we must live our lives each and every day with our eyes wide open and watching out for his attacks. Paul many times warned Christians about his very attacks. He talks about how we cannot be blind to his schemes. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 11, he says, in order that Satan may not outwit us. So he was talking about things that he has done so that Satan can't get the upper hand, that he can't outwit us. And he says, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So we look at what Peter and Paul have already said. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's a schemer. He's looking to destroy. He's looking to, to betray and to lead people astray. This is who our enemy is. So Satan is defeated and that is clear. But that's not going to stop him from trying to drive the world away from God and to keep the world from following Jesus. That, my friends, is his singular mission with the time that he has left until the end. That's how much hatred he has towards God. So all of his focus and energy goes into leading people astray. Then Revelation 13, as we come to that chapter... That gives us some insight into exactly how Satan plans 
to lead the whole world astray. So in chapter 12, we are introduced to Satan and this behind the scenes look at Christmas and what he was trying to do and what happened to him and how he got defeated. And Revelation 13 is kind of his master plan moving forward. You see, in in chapter 13, um, John tells us that in his vision, he sees the dragon, which is Satan, standing on the shore. And then out of the sea comes this beast. And it rises up. And then there's another beast that rises out of the earth. Now, I'm going to let you, on your own time, take a deeper dive into Revelation chapter 13. But I want to go through it quickly through, you know, flying at a high level. And I want to pull out the major themes of it. But then I'm going to let you take a deeper dive on your own because there's so much in here. So there's Satan and he's standing on the shore and these two beasts rise up. One from the earth and one from the sea. Let's read about it. Look at verse 1, chapter 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power, and his throne, and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but that fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because they had given authority to the beast and they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast and whose name names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Now, we just read a lot there and there was so much we could look at. There's much symbolism in the description of this first beast. But let me just cut to the chase because, you know, I want you to see the big picture. I want you to see what is going on here in the grand scheme of things. This first beast that rises out of the sea is symbolic of godless governments. Now remember, what are we talking about? We're talking about the ways that Satan is going to try to lead the whole earth astray. So this first beast that rises out of the sea is symbolic of godless government. This is how Satan tries to lead the masses away from the Lord. That's what I believe this is a description of. It's Satan spreading his influence throughout the ranks of godless governments that spread their laws and rules to their entire population. And it reaches the masses. It was this godless government that was persecuting Christians in the first century when John received this vision. Remember, these are persecuted Christians and they would have understood something about oppression and persecution and about these government entities that oppress the people of God. If you were paying attention to the details, this beast, it looks a lot like Satan. They bear a lot of similarities. This beast has 10 crowns. This beast has a throne and authority. 
One of the heads of this beast has a fatal wound that has been healed. You know, what does that mean exactly? Many have argued that this wounded head on this beast might just be a reference or a look back at Nero or a Nero-like figure. There was a a well-documented rumor that we read about in history that when Nero died, there was this rumor that spread that Nero had actually come back to life. And many people believed this. This this, if that's the case, then this might be John kind of pointing to a rumor or, or, or aligning two ideas together to represent that this is government here. These are leaders. These are political leaders. There's the way that Satan rises up and spreads his influence into the world through godless, godless governments to persecute Christians, which is certainly the very truth that was happening in first century of John's audience here. And it's not just specific to Rome in the time of this vision. This beast uh, is symbolic of any godless, oppressive government that exalts itself against Christ or exalts itself above Christ. Is there any doubt in any of our minds that Satan uses this tactic to this very day? I mentioned the persecution of the church in China many times, and I will mention it here again. But that's not the only one. There are many governments in our world that oppress Christians and they lead their entire nation down a completely godless path and Satan in many ways can be visualized as like this giant puppet master influencing and directing and steering entire populations of people away from God. I believe that that's the first beast in Revelation 13. It's this symbolic beast that represents godless government that Satan uses to try to lead people away from the Lord and those governments he uses to persecute and squash the church. China, as I said, is a very good example of that very thing happening right now. A godless government cramping down and persecuting Christians and leading their nation away from the Lord. North Korea is another And there are plenty governments just like that, big and small, around the world. And I want you to hear me. I love America, but don't think for a second that America is immune to Satan's schemes. I love our country, and I'm proud American, and I love the fact that our nation was built on a foundation of freedoms, but don't forget that this is also a nation that tries to censor the Bible at every turn, tries to censor the Bible out of our schools, and at the same time, passes out free condoms to children. This is a nation that kills more unborn babies every year than all the Americans that were lost in every battle since the beginning of our nation to today combined. Every year, more babies are killed than that number alone. This is a nation where a marriage between a man and a woman is thrown out the window. It's it's no longer sanctified. It's no longer protected. The family structure is being moved away from. This is a nation that we live in that is becoming increasingly hostile to biblical faith. I love America. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But don't think for a second that the dragon doesn't stalk our great country. 
So then John sees a second beast, and this beast rises out of the earth. Let's read it together. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given, power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship that image to be killed. Did you catch the imagery of the second beast here? What did it have? It says that it had, John sees this beast had two horns like a lamb, yet it sounded and it spoke like a dragon. Now think about that. It looked like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. You know what that tells us? That tells us that this second beast, it is a deceiver. This second beast is an imitator. It works to trick people into believing something that isn't true. I mean, you could argue just from this description of this second beast that it is trying to imitate the Lamb of God. I mean, it's a very clear distinction that this might be imitating Jesus, but it's actually Satan. So look at it this way. Not only, we're talking about the tactic that Satan uses to lead the masses away from the Lord. Not only does Satan use godless governments to try to drive people away from God, but Satan will use false religions and deception that do the same thing as well. So I believe that the second beast, this beast coming out of the earth in John's vision, is symbolic of false religions that the, that the devil has sprinkled through our world. How does Satan lead the world astray? He deceives and he enslaves billions of people through false religions like Islam and, and, and Buddhism and Hinduism and Mormonism and the occult and numerous false philosophies. He blinds people to the truth. They falsely believe in something that actually drives them away from God while they think they are serving him. You look at a lot of the false religions in the world, you can find many similarities between them, but where it really counts is where you find the differences and that is where Satan gets you. That's why he's a deceiver. So these two beasts represent some of Satan's best strategies for leading the world astray. Godless governments and false religions. And look out when the beast of godless governments and the beast of false religions join forces. We are reminded of this every time we hear the phrase Muslim nation or a Muslim country. That's a godless government and a false religion and it's Satan's way of leading all of their population astray. This, my friends, is a look at our true enemy. 
And I love how Matt Proctor describes it when he says, in Revelation 12 and 13, John rips back the veil on the spiritual realm and we suddenly see Satan as he truly is. The angel of light is unmasked and in its place we see a horrifying, violent dragon, huge and blood red. This grotesque dragon spreads his leathery wings, malice dripping from his jagged teeth and, and, and sears his enemies with fiery, sulfurous breath. Boy, I tell you, chapter 12 and chapter 13, that's a lot to take in. That all happens throughout the duration of the last days. We fight against this devil whose one aim is to lead the world astray. It's why everything is so hard That's why it's so difficult to stay faithful to the end. Because everywhere that we look in our world, the fingerprints of Satan are all over it. It's why conversions to Christ don't come easy. That's why every single person who comes to know Jesus as their personal savior and we get to watch them go down in that baptistry and come up out of the water a brand new person. It's why that's so hard and why we so greatly rejoice over every person who leaves the realm of Satan and comes into the light to experience new life. Friends, what is the overall message of the book of Revelation? It is what? It is we win. Don't ever forget that. We win. And so what are we to do? Remain faithful until the very end. What do we already know is that we are absolutely victorious through the blood of Jesus. Let me remind you, then we'll be done. Revelation 12, 11 says this, they triumphed over him. Who's the him? It's the dragon. They triumphed over the dragon, Satan, by how? The blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Friends, we absolutely win. Let's stay faithful to the end. Dear gracious God, thank you for introducing us to our adversary. Help us to be wise and sharp unto his schemes. Lord, help us never take for granted anything, but Lord, let us walk daily with you, trusting in you daily, Lord. And I pray for anybody watching this who has spent their lives on the devil's team. I pray, Lord, that today is their day, that they make the decision. I no longer want to live for the enemy. I want to live for the Lord. And I pray that they would repent of their sins, God, and that they would turn their eyes to you and they would believe on you in all faith that you died on the cross and rose to life and that you are coming again one day. Oh, God, we lift our eyes to you in glory and praise and honor and we will until the end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.